Amen. Good to see you. I love that song, How Great Thou Art. It's like the ultimate of worship to say, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds your hands have made. See the stars, hear the rolling thunder. See, according to what the scripture teaches us about worship, it's the creation of God that really mostly magnifies and describes who he is. He speaks to us, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. Day in to day utter speech, night unto night they show forth knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice isn't heard. The beauty and the awesomeness of nature speaks undeniably about the greatness of God. And so throughout the scriptures, that becomes the uh, you know, primary metaphor for God and the primary metaphor for what he does. David, the psalmist, who we will look at a psalm, the last psalm that he wrote today in 2 Samuel chapter 22, but it was one of his favorite things is to look at nature and connect it with the, the wonder and the splendor of God. You know, even the, the very element of, okay, we're talking about a guy who's doing life right. You know, he's like a tree planted by a river of water, brings forth its fruit in a season, his leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does will prosper. Well, now in 2 Samuel 22, David is at the end of his life, just about. This, is, this will be the last psalm that he wrote. And this psalm, it's also Psalm 18 in the book of Psalms, but he wrote it at this point in his life. Now, if you haven't been with us, we've seen the life of David is crazy. It's amazing. It's such a story. He starts out as a kid who's working as a little kid out there taking care of sheep, but practicing with his slang and developing certain skills and courage and insights into nature and even the scary elements of nature. Then he kills a giant and becomes a national hero, gets hired by Saul to work with him. He's a great musician and a great fighter, and those worked really well together. He marries a princess, but now Saul gets mad at him and just begins to you know, attack him, and David ends up on the run, and in the best years of his life, the most fruitful and productive age of his life, he's running away from Saul. He's living in caves. He's out in the woods with a bunch of scrappy guys who basically the world would describe them as losers, but they had each other and they were there and they scrapped and he ends up becoming the king of Israel. And yes, he had scandals. There were things that happened that weren't good, but there were lessons that he learned from that. He ended up, as we've been reading about, two different revolutions, basically, two different coups one of them led by his son who chases him out of Jerusalem and, and just really made a mess of things. David ended up being delivered in that case, much to his heartbreak as his son was killed. Then another guy, Sheba, steps up and he leads a rebellion. That too was quashed. Then we saw, you know, in the last chapter, these people, the Gibeonites, who were, were guys who were allowed to live right in the center of northern Israel because they had made a deal generations before with Joshua. But now they're starting to get cranky because 
their understanding from their history that King Saul had come and attacked them, violating that treaty, and now there's no rain for three years because God really wants to deal with this. But David ended up going to the Gibeonites, making peace with them, which is hugely important in the future, so that his son could inherit a kingdom, Solomon could inherit a kingdom that doesn't have a major angry enemy right in the middle of it. Um, and, and so he does that, but he had to sacrifice, he had to give over seven descendants of Saul to be sacrificed in order to do it. And we talked about how, you know, guy, that, that seems really bizarre until you consider that once David dies, the grown-up, you know, descendants of Saul are a huge threat to his son Solomon and so it's kind of like killing two birds with one stone in a way, where this is one threat removed and the threat of the Gibeonites is removed. And then he goes and, and they kill the, the, the sons of Goliath, the Philistine giant, because you know, as soon as David's out of the way, they're going to come in and get revenge on the son of, you know, they'll come and kill Solomon because their dad was killed by their, you know, by his dad. So um, all these things kind of come together in the previous chapter and have been resolved. And now David's like, wow, what do I do? What do I think? And he writes this amazing psalm here in 2 Samuel 22, and it's also in Psalm 18. So David, it says, verse 1, spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, the day when God delivered him from all of his enemies, delivered him from the Philistines, delivered him from, as he says, the hand of Saul, because see, God knew those guys were going to be a threat. Now they aren't anymore. And so here he is. His nation is intact. He has fought off two rebellions. And now he's like, it's time to worship God, which is such a, it tells us why he's a man after God's heart. He had an amazing capacity to do that. We have a tendency, frankly, to, to devalue artistic expressions, to think of songs as what we do before church. But the real church is when we get down to the facts, when we do the, you know, the study. That it, and yet God looks at it a lot differently and the man after God's heart ends up writing this long poem, basically, to celebrate everything that had happened. And the fact that that seems weird to us, we kind of don't sometimes understand how important is the expression of actual worship. It, it's critically important. It's, by the way, it's one of the things that it's, clearly we are going to do for all of eternity. Now, whenever you think worship... If you look at worship in the Bible, it's often and repeatedly referencing the, the more awesome aspects of nature. Because the things that we see in nature that are the most shocking, that are the most intimidating, in some ways the most scary, are often the things that get put into these worship songs. Because, see, the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork, day and day they utter speech. So it's like everything that's intimidating and awesome and scary about creation, that's a clue toward who God is. 
Because when you see something amazing in nature that could be overwhelming, when you feel a wave suck you under and you're like, I'm not sure which way is up and I don't know when I'm gonna get my next breath, the one thing that does is let you realize how fragile you are. Or when you're uh, uh, you know, climbing on a hill and all of a sudden you're losing your footing and you're hanging on and there's nobody around to help you. Or when you're in a storm and it looks like you're gonna be washed away or when you know, lightning's striking or you know, the earth shakes, you go, whoa. Nothing reminds me of what I'm not, like the power of nature. And so it regularly in Scripture, artistic expressions concerning the nature of nature connect us with the nature of God. I mean, if you were raised, born and raised in California like me, earthquakes aren't a big deal. So if you go, like God's like an earthquake, you're like, yeah, comes and goes damages hillbillies out in meth country, you know. <laughs> We're fine here, it doesn't do it to us. I remember as a kid, our, my, my relatives in Oklahoma were afraid to come to California because of earthquakes. In their neighborhood, a tornado would come down the street and just wipe out a trailer park, and they're like, eh, you know, it's just, that's the way life is. But there's something healthy, and now it's cool they have earthquakes back there too, so. I'm thankful for that. But um, what brings you to the point of awe? What brings you to the point of going, I don't even know what to say? A star-filled night? Well, the problem is in our culture, we've so much done away with. Everything is asphalt over everything. Trees are artificial. There are, you know, there, there are so many things that we have done to destroy the beauty of nature, but also destroy the awesomeness of nature. It's why to really worship God, it helps if you get away, get out to a beautiful place, and it's like going, wow, here's something that I just can't go, yep, I can describe that. It's as simple as that. Nature doesn't become more amazing as you try to analyze and evaluate it. You end up missing the point of it. So here, he begins to write, and he says, on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and the hand of Saul, and he said, The Lord, Yahweh, is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I'll call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. And then check this out. When the waves of death surrounded me, death, it's like it's going to swallow you up. It's going to suck you in at some point. And when you're in that feeling of, ah, there's waves, and, and what do I do? The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol, you know, the grave, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God, he heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils. See, it's not literally like God has nostrils that blow smoke. It's like, no, anything that I've ever experienced or anything that I could ever imagine, as scary, as awesome, as wild as I can go to, then that's what I'm saying, God, you're that. You're more amazing 
than all of these things that I'm describing. And it says that, you know, the coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down, darkness under his feet, rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. Use your imagination. He made darkness, canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High utters his voice. He sent out armies and scattered them, lightning bolts, vanquished them. Channels of the sea were visible. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. So he's like, God is beyond description. But the most incredible things that you will ever see in life, the most awesome nature of what the world is, gives you a hint that God's in that kind of territory. He's in that kind of category. Not to be analyzed and interpreted and boiled down to some boring theological concept. Um, when, When the Bible describes God, it never gives a systematic theology. It's like, you look at this, lightning, thunder, waves, crashing and all. Isn't that, doesn't that put you more in awe than, you know, the shorter Westminster Catechism definition of God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, power, holiness, justice, and truth. Blah. No, God is lightning, he's thunder, he's waves crashing over you, he's mountains, he's traveling through the sky. David's understanding is, I can't totally describe him, but God, you're like this. The most incredible things that I see are the very things that you are and then some, because you made all that stuff. And so the heavens, again, declare the glory of God. But then he kind of shifts in verse 21, and it almost sounds like bragging, because now he's talking about And God's been good to me because I'm good. You're like, "Uh, David, did you forget all the bad things that your scandal-ridden regime that you... But bear with him here. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed, recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me... As for his statutes, I didn't depart from them. I was also blameless as far as he was concerned. Before him, I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of his eyes. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you'll be blameless. With the pure, you'll show yourself to be pure. With the devious, you will show yourself. It's the same Hebrew word. People get sneaky with you, you get sneaky with them. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. So how can he say, you've rewarded me according to my righteousness? Well, every one of us in our life, we can categorize every choice that we make. Either that was the right thing or that was the wrong thing. And so when we look at our lives, I have a choice. Do I have the concept of, well, I did more bad than good? Or do I understand that here at the end of my life, all that matters is God? And the fact that God has rewarded when I made good choices. Now, 
you're also thankful that, you know, he shows mercy. See, David, when he had his greatest failure, I think it was probably his greatest failure, although you can argue there are greater consequences to some of his other sins, but ultimately murder and adultery was a pretty bad thing. But he confessed it to God, and Nathan, speaking for God, said, and God has forgiven you. David clearly believes that. He clearly believes that as far as God's concerned, that is set aside. So what's left? David did a lot of good things. And he said, you know, yes, of course, there are negative consequences. But his point here in praising God is, man, everything good I ever did, you rewarded. The other stuff, you know, it's... You paid for it and everything, but that's not worthy of praise of God. He isn't like, and a lot of times I think when we praise God, we're like, God, thank you that you forgave me for this, you forgave me for this, you forgave me for this. That's not understanding who God is and how God understands us. See, when God looks at us, he says, okay, you've confessed your sins. Push those aside. Now here's how I see you. And David understands that. Don't get obsessed with, oh, God, thank you for forgiving me for when I did this. And thank you for forgiving me and loving me, even though I know I don't deserve it. And it no, it's David's heart for God is like, I'm amazed that anything good I ever did was done and that you made it pay, that you made it beneficial, that you made it a blessing. See, what David's really celebrating here is the biggest gift that God gave other than his son, which is the gift of us being able to make choices and having legitimate consequences for those choices. Now, am I thankful for bad choices I made? No. But if I'm praising God, push those aside. What I'm thankful for is that once in a while, I'll do something and God blesses it. And I go, a choice that I made resulted in a good consequence. And when you're worshiping God, that's where the emphasis should be. The other stuff just burns up. It doesn't matter anymore. But for David to, to celebrate God because of the fact that God has given this, us this amazing ability to make choices that actually have consequences, that's so powerful. I don't understand why people would want to believe in a God who decides everything for you. That God doesn't trust you to be able to do anything realistic at all. And then other people who are like, well, you know, God's kind of weighing it out. I don't know. How good, how do you weigh off, well, I wrote this song and then I killed these guys. So, <laughs> but when you have a God who forgives when you make bad choices, even though he will allow you to have consequences from them as great reminders. But the truth is, that your future and mine can be influenced by the choices that we make today. And that's a powerful truth. And it's because God gives us that opportunity. And so here, you know, he, I think David is just going, man, I thank you for that you rewarded me according to my righteousness. I thank you that when I did the right thing, good things happened to me. Now, forget about when I do the wrong things. That ultimately ends up, yeah, you pay for that yourself. But the fact that you can do something that God can bless, 
The fact that ever in your life you'd be able to do something that might help somebody else or imagine having a hand in someone else coming to salvation or someone who thinks that nobody loves them, understanding that somebody loves them, that's amazing that we could have that kind of influence. And so David's like, you know what? You reward good choices, and I'm just going to celebrate that. And so, you know, I like that. And it tells us a lot about worship, really, and the man after God's heart. But he goes on and says, you'll save the humble. The only way you win with him is by humility. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, so humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. That's kind of what he's saying here. When you see people in pride, you bring them down. And essentially, David is kind of subtly saying, thank you that when I was humble, you elevated me. But when I was prideful, you crushed me. That really helped God. That was really beneficial for the world, for me personally, for those around me, and ultimately, it's to your glory. And I'm thankful that I ever had an opportunity to do good for somebody. And if I did that, it was because of my humility. We misunderstand a lot of times. We, it seems like, oh, doing great things for God means look at me. David understood. Now, the times when people were going, whoa, look at you, that didn't accomplish anything. I didn't want that attention. I didn't, you know, power corrupts. That's something that we all fight because God gives us certain capabilities and then he blesses them and we start thinking that we're somebody and that pride comes before destruction. It comes before a fall. And so David's like, the best things I ever did were the things I did from humility. Thank you for acknowledging that. And by implication, I'm glad that when I was prideful, things didn't work out so well ultimately. I think in our culture, it's hard for us to have any concept of how in the world is humility a real valuable trait? Because in our culture, we value pride over everything else. We want our you know, Instagram celebrities. We want to be known. We want to make a difference. We want a lot of followers. We, and David understood, no, God, I'm just thankful that ultimately you taught me that that means nothing, that what I want to do is walk in humility. So then as he goes on and he says, you're my lamp. God, I see things because of you. And, but this is interesting. He starts talking about his abilities physically. And he says, by you, I can run against a troop. By my Lord, I can leap over a wall. His way is perfect. Who is God except the Lord, verse 32, and who is a rock except our rock? God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path so my feet didn't slip. I pursue my enemies and destroy them because I didn't turn back and I've destroyed them and wounded them. I crushed them. You've armed me with strength for the battle. You've given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked and there was none to save. 
Even to the Lord, he didn't answer, and I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. You're like, wait, I thought this was worship. (laughs) What David is looking at is everything that he ever accomplished in the role that God had given him. And we would look at it, and humans would look at it and go, how did David get so fast? How did he get so strong? How did he get so good with a sword? How did he get so good with a sling? How did he become such a great leader? And see, the truth is, he says, God, you did that. But we would look at it and go, he talks about the fact that, no, man, when I was out in the wilderness taking care of lambs, I practiced fighting against animals. I was using my sling constantly. I was running. I got in shape I was a tough warrior. I spent most of my adult life out in the wilderness training for what God would ultimately do in my life when he would fulfill his promises and make me king. So humans could look at it and go, he worked like crazy in order to become who he became. And that is certainly true. He did. He trained constantly. But he says, ultimately, that was all you. You were the one who came along. I mean, I could have been out there running in the wilderness and twisted a knee and been out of commission. I could have got hit in the eye with something and not be able to to shoot a sling the way I could. There's so many things that could have gone wrong, but I gave it 100%, and you're the one, God, who caused that to work. And I think it's important for us to look at our lives and understand, okay, I have to make the best choices like we were talking about. And making a good choice means preparing yourself for how you might be most effective for the Lord. I think every one of us has a responsibility to say, okay, how can I do the best thing that I can do to accomplish the most good? What's God leading me? But now you have to work super hard in order to become effective because God blesses people who work hard to prepare themselves. I think it's nowadays everyone wants things to be handed to them. And, you know, it's like, no, if you're not willing to do the work, what you expect God to bless your laziness? You expect, expect God to bless your shortcuts when you're just sitting there wasting a day? You expect God to use that to make you stronger? Or is he going to make you weaker and less effective and, and more sluggish? David's like, Man, I was in great shape for a long time, and I crushed it. But I realized, you're the one that did that. Because you were there. You were every push-up that I did, every time I threw a rock, every time I sparred with my guys to prepare for battle, every time I did everything that I did, jumping over walls and all of that, you were there with me. There's nothing better than the kind of worship that can look back at the end of life and go, I crushed it, but God, you helped me pay the price to do what you've called me to do. I gave it 100%, and so did you. I could have given it 100% and still failed, but I did everything that I could do, but the reason it worked is because you also did everything that you could do. Nobody should be lazy or undisciplined and expect that somehow magically God's just going to show up and make it work. But people who work really hard at stuff find out that it's amazing what God will do when you're willing to put in the work. And that's what, you know, David is kind of celebrating here. 
So then he goes on and says too in verse 44, you've also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. Sometimes your own people are the biggest threat. Sometimes it's like, the deepest wounds that you will ever experience are the wounds that come from people that you trusted. People that you thought had your back. Get used to it. It's the way it is. But David said, even then when my own people, my own son turned on me, you had my back. You were there for me. And, you know, boy, do we need to be thankful for the times when God rescues us from civil war, when God rescues us from people who we trust that turn out to not be trustworthy. And so David just throws that in there as well. And, uh, and he talks about, hey, foreigners are afraid of me. And then he finally ends it from verse 47 on with just kind of the chorus of this whole thing. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. He'll lift me up above those who rise against me. You've delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. He is the the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Pretty amazing stuff, really. But David is here. It's the end of his life. He's looking back and he's saying, you know what? The foremost thing in my mind is that, God, you've been with me this whole way. You defy my imagination. You are, I praise you because you are bigger than anything I can imagine. Everything I see in nature that overwhelms me speaks to me of you. And throughout life, I've actually made a few good choices that actually worked out, and that was because of you. And when people turned against me, you protected me. Everything that you've done is leading and guiding me to where I am today, that at the end of my life, I have a united kingdom. I, I have, uh, uh, I've accomplished, I've, I've you know, acquired assets for the next generation to be able to build the temple. A lot of people would look at my life and go, wow, that David was pretty good. And he's like, God, it's you. You defy description. You defy my imagination. And I praise you. I think for every one of us, once in a while, we need to say, first of all, when was the last time you really looked at the world and said, wow, and realized that's God? That's, you know, when you are, I mean, like he, he talks about it, and if you're ever out in the ocean and you know all of a sudden, well, that's a big wave, and oh, it's an, ah, and you're losing your blown bubbles out, and you're like, does that speak to you? Of that's the way God is. He's like so much more powerful than me. I can't fight against, I can't, I have to go with the flow. I have to let the wave take me where it's taking me. And he goes, that's my worship. That's God. When you go out and and you know you have to get out of town a little bit. The one thing that they haven't totally messed up is the ocean. So I love going to the ocean because they still haven't figured out a way to asphalt the thing. But <laughs> it's like when you say wow, you're worshiping God. Worshiping God isn't like theology. It's not like oh here are the basic tenets of no. It's like when you can look at the world and go. There are things that amaze me that I can't describe. 
It's what happens when you see a baby born, you know? It's what, happened when you, what happens when you see someone being kind to someone when they have nothing you know, to gain from it. Or you get away with something that like, wow, I thought I was done, but here I am. And we go, okay, God, the best thing I can say to you is, wow, just wow, I, 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 can't, I can't describe you and I don't want to reduce you, but I'm in awe of you. It's certainly important for us to worship God. It's one of the reasons why we have worship at church. It's a chance to be able to do that. Now, I get it. Some people just think of worship as being the preliminary, and you know, uh, it's really the teaching of the Word that really matters. Well, I'm teaching you this from the Word. Worship is incredibly important, and it's something that we should value. Oh, it can't be self-expression. It needs to be self-denial for sure. You know, but, but at the same time, when it's done right, it's amazing. Ask yourself, when was the greatest worship experience you've ever had in your life? And I suspect it wasn't like really arranged and formal and the words weren't on the screen, frankly. It's like there's a time when it's just like, oh, wow, takes my breath away. It doesn't make, it, doesn't make more formal worship bad, but our formal worship should remind us of the truths that will cause us to go out during the week and actually get out there where we can't describe it and see his beauty. And that's something that David teaches us. But every one of us, like David, what we accomplish with the gifts that God has given us, that's on us. But if we do the hard work, he will come along and make it successful. And we'll go, yeah, I worked really hard for that, to get fast, to be able to jump, to be able to shoot, to be able to do everything that I'm doing. But God, I know there were a hundred times when it could have messed up. And you were there leading me and inspiring me. And ultimately, in the end, you had my back when no one else did. And so I praise you. You are the one that matters. Nothing in life is worthwhile apart from you. And to me, that's, it's an appropriate way to basically almost end the life of David. We have two more chapters that we'll go through. And one of them is kind of a summary of what happened with some of his guys. And another one is a a failure at the end when they numbered the people and they weren't supposed to. But, and then you have to go all the way to uh, 1 Kings to see David die in the first chapter. But, you know, this is the culmination. This is where David goes, I'm going to write my last psalm. I'm going to, the man after God's heart, I'm going to express this. I don't know, have you ever even tried to write something that reflects what you can't completely describe. Might be an interesting exercise for you, for sure. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this amazing psalm from an amazing man. And I thank you that when we look at David, we tend to just remember his failures, but in the end, he understood. No, it's just the success that defines you because we have a merciful God. Lord, may we not just live our lives trying not to mess up. May we live our lives allowing you to make us as effective as we can be as we follow you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.